Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. If you have your Bibles, please open to Romans 3 and follow along. If you don't, the passage will be on the screen. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Thanks, Ryan. That transition was seamless. So good. All right, we're going uh, to pray and then we'll get into this passage. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, that we can gather this morning. Um, thank you, Lord, for this moment that we have uh, to be present here. We pray, Lord, that the distractions of our week, the distractions of our heart may be put aside for a moment while we encounter the living God. And so we pray that by your spirit you would work among us today, that we may be different people than the ones who walked in because we've heard from you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the pre-marriage course, material stuff that we use at our church, one of my favorite moments is when we get to conflict resolution. Uh, I love it because whether you're in a marriage or not, in any relationship, it's important to figure out how to deal with hostility in your relationship and they give two amazing pictures that you can identify with in how you deal with hostility and so the first one is that of a rhino you may be a rhino when it comes to dealing with hostility that is you're a little bit more aggressive your way of dealing with that and processing that is a little bit more out there you attack and you generally leave a trail of destruction behind you now as you think about relationships that you're in maybe you know a rhino Maybe you are a rhino. 
Then there's the next picture. It's the picture of a hedgehog. This is a little bit more different. This way of dealing with hostility is the person that retreats. Sometimes you don't even know there's a problem. They're a little bit more silent, but when you go near them, they hurt. It's the silent treatment often, it's passive-aggressive, maybe you're the hedgehog, or maybe you know a hedgehog. Now, I love thinking about this because there's always this moment where the couple looks at each other and they point out which the other one is. But it's important that you do this. It's important that you work through to figure out how you can deal with hostility in a relationship. And that's important whether it is a marriage or a friendship or with a family member or with anyone else. It matters that you deal with hostility in your relationships. And this is true not just with people. It's true with God. Right? Like, I don't know if you realized this this morning as you came to church, but it actually matters that we deal with the hostility that comes before us and God. And so today, what we want to do is we want to ask this question. What is it? What is the hostility that comes before us and God? And what can be done about that? And why does it matter that there's a problem between us and God? That's what we're going to look at this morning as we dig into this passage in Romans, in Romans chapter 3, and where we find ourselves reveals something quite revealing as we think about this sort of stuff, and it reveals the problem, that there is a massive problem between us and God. You see, we find ourselves smack bang in the middle of an argument from Paul, and if you've been with us in the last couple of weeks, you would have felt that as Ross has spent time explaining to us the previous couple of chapters. And last week, we were reminded that there's a problem between us and God. We saw it in chapter 3 from verse 10 to 18, and you can see it in 14 different ways on the screen. Paul explains to us that there's an issue. No one is good, he said. No one understands. No one is righteous. All of us have treated God the wrong way. Now, this word righteous will be key for us today as we think about it, and it's kind of this idea of right living. It's treating God the right way. It's doing the right stuff. It's not doing the wrong stuff. And Paul says, when we think about it, no one is righteous. No one is good enough. All of us have a problem between us and God. Then we get to our passage today. And Paul doubles down on it. And we saw that in verse 23 as he highlights and he says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. All of everyone throughout all of history, all people ever, all the people in the Roman church and all of us today, myself included, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, which means we've all got a problem. All of us have an issue when it comes to us and God, and the problem is there's hostility. We have wronged this God. We haven't treated God the right way. We haven't done the right stuff all the time. And so we find ourselves confronted with an issue between us and the living God. Now, I wonder as you reflect on this, I wonder how it makes you feel. I wonder what thoughts run through your head as you reflect on the fact there's a problem between us and God. You know, maybe as you came into church this morning, maybe you're aware of this. You know, for some of us, I think that we're aware that there's a problem between us and God. We live with that tension day in, day out. That all of us actually feel like all the time there must be something wrong between me and God because of the way my life is going or because of the way other relationships go in my life, or because of the way that I'm being treated. Some of us know that there's hostility between us and God. But others of us, we feel like it's not that bad. You know, maybe this is you this morning. Maybe you don't feel like the problem between me and God is actually that bad. Maybe you've come to church this morning and go, you know what, that's not that bad, because I'm not that bad. And I wonder why it is that you feel that way. You know, sometimes I think it's because we misunderstand this idea of falling short. You know, when we read this verse, this verse, verse 23, it's a famous verse. You might have heard it before. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
But see, what's interesting is sometimes we misunderstand the idea of falling short. You know, I, I wonder what you think of when you think of falling short. For me, I think of a race. I think of the idea of running in a race or entering into some sort of competition and where you fall over, but what are we taught from the earliest of age? We just get up and finish the race. Right? And so we have this idea that if I fall short of the glory of God, then all I've got to do is just try a bit better, work a bit harder, get back up, and then I'll reach the glory of God. It reminded me of this actually this week. It was uh, something that happened 19 years ago. It will make you feel old if you are old, but it was 19 years ago that this happened. Stephen Bradbury, if you don't know what this uh, picture represents, it was the Olympics in 2002. And uh, it's worth, if you're not familiar with the story, just reading up on it and finding out a little bit about it. Uh, but I watched the video this week, and Stephen Bradbury was the oldest in the race and the slowest by a long shot in the race. And uh, as you watch it, he's losing pretty much from the moment they start until the moment they finish. And they get to the final lap of the, final, uh, of the race. It's 1,000 meters. They get to the final lap, the final corner, and we know what happens. Everyone in front of him, the four races in front of him, fall over. And he goes through and he wins the glory. You know what I was struck by this week, though? Second and third still got glory. You notice that? Like, see them up there. <laughs> That's them behind him diving for the finish line. They fell over, and yet they still came second and third in the world in 2002 in this particular race. They fell over, but they still received glory. Now, sometimes I think we think about this with God, right? We fall short of the glory of God, but if we just get up and finish the race, then we'll get there. You know, if we can get out of this season, if we can try a little bit harder, be a little bit better, do enough good stuff, right? I'm just in a season of my life right now. If I can get out of this season, then I'm going to be good enough and I'm going to receive the glory that God has for me, the glory of God. Now, what's interesting is this is what every religion in the world says apart from Christianity, I don't know if you've noticed that, but every religion says you might have fallen over, but just try a little bit harder, be a little bit better, and you'll get to God. You know, my Hindu friends, that's what they get at. That's it. They say a part of their religion and their belief system is they've got to be good. The Jehovah's Witness walk our streets because they need to be good enough to get to heaven. Buddhism requ requires you to do good so that you'll have good karma. Islam requires the same thing. You need to be good so that you'll be good enough. Every religion in the world says you've fallen over but be a little bit better and then you'll receive glory. The problem is Christianity doesn't say that. And there's no way that we can actually read that from this word fall short, especially if we've experienced the weight of the last few chapters. Paul has gone to lengths to labor. He's labored on that no one's good enough, that no one's righteous. And what's interesting actually is that this word fall short could be translated literally lack. And I think that's actually a better translation. Instead of all fall short of the glory of God, it could be read all lack the glory of God. Now this brings to us different images to falling short. If falling short implies that you can just get up and finish the race and you'll get there, lack kind of implies that there's nothing you can do to get there. In fact, the image that I think of was an image for me uh, growing up when I was five years old. One night I decided it would be a little bit of fun to dress up like my dad. He's 35 and here's a picture of it. All right, we can get rid of that picture. Um, but that was the picture of me dressing up like my dad. But when I think about it, 
You know, it doesn't matter how much a five-year-old dresses up like a 35-year-old. You know, like I could do everything possible. I could wear all of the right clothes. I had his jeans, his shoes. I still remember his shoes were way too big for me. Wear the belt. I could have got his glasses out, did my hair the right way. But it doesn't matter, right? Because a five-year-old can never be a 35-year-old. It doesn't matter how much you dress that up. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You can just never do it. You will always be found lacking. And I think that this is a better picture. When we think about what the Bible says about our state and our position before God, it's not that we've fallen short and we can just get up and finish the race and then we'll receive glory. It's that we're found lacking. That there's nothing we can do to be good enough. There's nothing we can do that's going to dress ourselves up enough to be exactly the way that we need to be. All of us have this problem. All of us are found lacking of the glory of God. And so what that means is all of us have hostility. All of us have a problem between us and God. Now, the question is, if all of us have this problem, the question is, why do we have to deal with this problem? Why is this a relationship where hostility matters? You know, because when we think about it, not every relationship with hostility do we have to deal with. You know, so in my marriage with Elizabeth, when there's hostility, we've got to deal with that. And if you're wondering, we're both rhinos. We have to deal with that, right? We have to apologize for the aggression and the things that we've said. That's a relationship you've got to deal with. But there's other relationships where you don't have to deal with the hostility. So this week when I was driving in the right lane, the speed limit, and a guy overtook me eventually and gave me the finger, that's not a relationship I've got to fix. And I waved back with all fingers in the air. But you see this, right? Not every relationship in life do you have to fix. Some of us, when there's problems, we just let go. So why is it when it comes to God, why is this one we've got to fix? Why is this one that we've got to consider and think about? Well, there's two reasons for this. The first one we saw last week. Remember if we were here, Ross spoke to us about this idea that God alone is judge. He talked about how we we want to be judge, but God is the judge, the just and holy judge. And this is the first reason it matters. Now, in this passage, we find ourselves in the courtroom of God. In fact, you notice that in this passage, in these verses, there's imagery here that's meant to take us to the courtroom of God. You see it in a few different ways. It says the law and the prophets testify. The accusation against us is there. All have fallen short. You get this word justified, which is this courtroom idea, this legal term of being declared innocent. Then you get God being called the just and the one who justifies. All of this brings an intensity to it that should take us to the courtroom of God, where we find ourselves, and all we've brought is our sin. All we've got is the fact that we lack the glory of God. And then we've got the holy and perfect judge who sees everything and knows everything. And understands everything, that there's nothing from us that we can hide from this God. Everything done in secret, all the mistakes that we've done, all the thoughts that we've had, everything we've done is laid bare before the holy and just God. This should put the fear into our bones to recognize this. This is what Paul's doing. He's putting us in the courtroom of God. But there's a second reason it matters. And it's got to do with this idea of shedding of blood or this sacrifice of atonement. You see, the second reason it matters, if the first is God is judged, the second is 
because the wages of sin is death. Now this is something we see right throughout the Bible and to really appreciate this, we've got to go on a journey back to the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, the temple was the meeting place with God and a part of the temple was a sacrificial system set up and there was this one festival they would do, this Day of Atonement, they would do it each year and on the Day of Atonement, there was a priest and the priest was brought two goats And these goats teach us something about the weightiness of sin and that sin leads to death. So the goats were brought to the priest. And the first goat that was brought to the priest, and this would happen each year, the first goat that was brought symbolically represented that for people to be right with God, they needed their sin to be taken away. And so what happened was the goat was then let go into the wilderness. This is where we get the word scapegoat or the idea of scapegoat from. This goat was let go into the wilderness to symbolically say that for people to be right with God, we need our sin to be taken away. But then there was the second goat. And this second goat wasn't let go. This second goat was killed. And its blood was shed. And then the blood was sprinkled in the temple. And in this moment, right, and and we're to feel the weight of it, even if we've heard it before, this is a graphic picture that sin leads to death right like we might have heard the idea of sacrifice before but feel the weight of this the sound of the goat dying the blood pouring out the blood then sprinkled it is full on and when we think about it like we know that's not a good picture you know in 2021 we know that we don't want to think about death we don't want to think about death especially not death in animals And I don't know if you've noticed this, but marketing and advertising does everything that it can to remind us that when we eat meat, that it wasn't actually a living animal. Have you noticed that? Like, there's a reason that lamb chops, there's not a picture of a sheep on the front of it, smiling, with its name underneath it. (laughs) Because we don't want to think about death. We want to pretend that this thing wasn't a living animal. And yet what you've got in the temple in this moment was this goat in, in kind of in front of them with their blood pouring out and then their blood sprinkled. And it's this living image, this graphic image that in some ways should kind of make you feel sick. That for people to be right with God, someone or something has to die. So this is the second reason why it matters. From beginning to end of the Bible, the wages of sin is death. So we've got this reality. If all of us have this problem between us and God, and God is the holy and perfect judge who sees all and knows all, and the wages of sin is death, that the punishment for what we've done is death, this is why this is something we've got to deal with. So what can be done about it? What can we do about it? especially if our best efforts is like a five-year-old dressing up like a 35-year-old. Right? That's what we look like when we try and be good enough and deal with this problem. It just looks funny. It feels wrong. So what can be done? Well, God did something about it. And this is where we find the beauty of this passage, that our God, instead of giving us what we deserve, sent Jesus to step in our place. And it's here that we begin understanding this message of the bible it's here that we begin to understand the beauty and the power of this passage so let's let's appreciate that as we read through this let's appreciate all that god has done to make us right with him 
This is what he says in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short or lack the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What can be done about this? Well, in an amazing turn, instead of God pouring his wrath out on us, Jesus is the one who dies. It's his bloodshed on the cross that pays the redemption price so that we can be right with God. It's unbelievable what God would do. Because if we were in that position of judge, which we want to be so much as we reflected on last week, there's no way we would have done that. But God, as the just, perfect judge, is also the one who justifies. And he sent Jesus in our place. And as we see that, we see that Jesus was the one the Old Testament spoke about. The Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the one who freely gives this grace. Jesus is the one who justifies us and makes us right with God. Jesus is the sacrifice of atonement, the once-for-all sacrifice. And in Jesus' death, as he was graphically murdered on the cross. It's here that God is both just and keeps his justice and is the one that justifies. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the Bible here in what God did to rescue us. Now, as we think about this passage, it's worth thinking about what this means for us. You know, as we see all the lengths that God went to to bring us in, it's worth reflecting, okay, so what does this mean for us? And today as we think about it, I think there's two things for us, at least two things to think about that it means for us. First and foremost, the first thing it means for us is we've got a choice to make. We've got a decision to make here. Because when we realize our hostility between us and God, the decision is this, either we pay Either we die, and it's our death, or Jesus does. There's no other option. God can't just forget. If he looked at our sin and just forgot, then he wouldn't be just. In this moment, either we pay for our sin, or Jesus does. And so we've got a decision. Are we going to reject this? Are we going to reject Jesus? Ignore this message. Say that this isn't for me. You know, you can do that. And maybe this morning you've been reflecting, what, what is this all about? And maybe you're not sure. But know this, if you reject the message of the Bible, if you reject Jesus, then one day we're going to face the judgment seat of God. We're going to face the holy and just God who knows everything about us. And if we reject Jesus on that day, we will have to pay. We will. There's no one else that's going to pay. We're going to have to pay. 
and we will be the ones who are cast out. Or we can accept Jesus, trust Jesus, believe in Jesus in our hearts, believe that he is God and that God raised him from the dead and with our mouths confess that and tell people around us that we believe in Jesus. And if we believe in Jesus, then on that day when we find ourselves in the courtroom of the living God, instead of us paying the price, it'll be Jesus. He'll step in front and he'll point to the cross and say, that was the moment that I paid their redemption price. Now, if we accept Jesus, this morning maybe you know, you're thinking about this, maybe you want to accept Jesus, know that as we do this, he's not discouraged. He's not disheartened. You know, he's not going to be like, why did you take so long? No, in this moment we see that Jesus is inviting you in. He wants this for you. He wants you to put your trust in him. Jesus is inviting us to come home. But the decision's ours. So what are you going to do? The decision is ours, and the consequence of that decision will be ours as well. So that's the first thing. We've got a choice to make. But the second thing we see, if we make the decision to put our trust in Jesus, the second thing we see is from these final verses in this passage. And in this passage, Paul basically gets at two ideas, boasting and the law. And we can see it on the screen here. He starts off and he says, where then is boasting? It's excluded. We're going to focus on that this morning. But then he talks about the law. And we'll reflect on this as the series goes on. But basically what he's saying here is when we put our trust in Jesus, we don't get rid of the law. The law which was summed up by Jesus to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't get rid of that now that we know that it can't save. No, he says we uphold that. Now, we'll reflect on that as the series goes on, but we want to focus this morning on this idea of boasting. He says, where is boasting? It's excluded. And this word, this idea of boasting, should take us to a battle scene. In fact, if you know the story of David and Goliath, when the Philistines are boasting in their great warrior, it's because they've got confidence in Goliath. You know, we boast in what we have confidence in. And here, Paul's saying, where is our boasting? It's excluded. And it's excluded because we're not saved by the law, right? So what this means for us is we no longer find confidence in the law. We no longer find confidence in ourselves, in our own ability. Now, I love this because it's so practical for us. It means so much for us when we realize that we no longer boast in ourselves and have confidence in ourselves. Because when we've got confidence in ourselves, it either results in two things. It either results in pride or despair. Right? If we're confident in my own actions, it's e it either means I'm going to be proud or I'm going to live my life in despair. So when I have a good day, if my confidence is in me, when I have a good day, when I do the right stuff, when I'm pretty good, you know, like am a good, have a good day as a husband, as a father, as a friend, when I'm feeling good, when things are going right, when I have a good quiet time and, you know, my theology's on point and I feel really good... If my confidence is in me, what tends to happen is I become proud. You ever notice that? Like we become self-righteous and we subtly think, man, God loves me today. God is so happy with me today because I've had a good day. When our confidence is in ourselves, it can lead to pride, but it can also lead to despair because we don't always have good days. We have bad days. And when we have bad days, when things aren't going right for us, when we stumble, when we stuff up, when we go through difficult seasons, 
when we don't read our Bible, we don't pray, and we don't feel like we're doing the right stuff, when we don't have everything together and have all the right answers, when we're barely holding together, if my confidence is in me, then I live in despair. God can't love me. He must not love me. But Paul says, where is boasting? It's excluded. Our confidence isn't in us. It's not in what I do. It's in what Jesus has done. And when we grasp this beautiful truth, it allows us to live in humility and in joy, whether we have good days or bad days, whether things are going well for us or not, because our confidence rests in Jesus, the one who has died, the one who was raised to life, the one who paid the redemption price, and the one who says, if you trust in me, you can have this free gift of eternal life. Our confidence in Jesus allows us to live in humility and joy whatever day we're having. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that on the back of the last couple of weeks where we've been reminded and reflecting on this reality that we have this problem with you. And even today as we've reflected on the hostility between us and the living God, that we can know that the story doesn't end with our sin. God, we're so grateful that even though you are the just judge, that you are also the loving justifier and that you have rescued us and redeemed us. We pray, Lord, that as we reflect on all that happened at the cross, that this would have very real implications for our life, and that we would be a people, Lord, that are able to live in this sense of security and humility and joy, knowing whatever day that we have, whatever we're going through, that we are secure because of what Jesus did on the cross. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.